the easiest part is the what, the data, and the now what. Like it's easy to tell people what to do. Whether or not it's the right thing to do is another story. The hardest part is gather is analyzing that data. Um, and yes, these tools that we have today, this technology, are nice supplements for analyzing data. I wouldn't rely on them completely. All right, this is Bare Knuckles and Brass Tacks, the cybersecurity podcast that tackles the vendor-customer relationship and everything in between. I'm George K. with the vendor side. And I'm George A., Chief Information Security Officer. And today, our guest is someone who needs no introduction, but we should introduce her anyway. It's the one, the only, Danny Wolf. Welcome to the show. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's sort of odd to interview you since we're friends and text every day, but I still want your expertise on the show. So here you are. Let's do it. So we typically start by asking people how they got into cyber, but I think your story is well known at this point between Audience First and between the WTF podcast. So I actually want to ask you, how did you get into marketing? It, it's a funny story, actually. I uh, When I moved to Israel uh, 14 years ago, um, I was in school for TESOL. I don't know if you know what TESOL is, T-E-S-O-L, teaching English as a second language. And I was working at the time as an English teacher for sixth grade. And that lasted maybe six months. It was the most <laughs> brutal job I've ever had in my life. I ran away so quickly and I'm like, one, it's, it's brutal. I mean, working with kids is absolutely difficult, especially, you know, hyper uh, sixth graders and hormonal yeah. sixth graders. Second, um, there's like no money in it. I was making negative, basically. I could not <laughs> afford to continue down that route. Um, you know, especially living in Tel Aviv, an urban city. And so I was like, okay, well, what do I do? Um, you know, I have an art background. I can't be an artist cause that doesn't put food on the table either. Um, I have a business mindset, you know, my dad, uh, you know, worked in tech for a long time. I saw how he's done it. I kind of loved, you know, learning, you know, the ropes, uh, behind the scenes and I'm like, okay, well I have English. Um, I have a pretty savvy, savvy mind. I have soft skills. I write well, um, I can design, let's get into marketing. And, um, you know, I was looking for a job, uh, at the time and looking at some job boards and, uh, you know, found a great position, which actually opened the door to, to the startup, uh, the startup world for me. Uh, and it, it, I didn't look back from there. I mean, that first job was, was a great, um, school for me, a marketing school for me. And I uh, just, you know, worked my, worked my way up the ladder and, you know, tried to hone as many skills as I could in, in all the roles that I had up until today and, and found kind of my niche and my passion uh, on the way. Um, so it was a happy accident. It was out of frustration. I mean, all the good things that happen in life, in my opinion, are out of frustration. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it, it was looking back at it now is absolutely ridiculous, um, uh, hats off to all teachers. Let's just say that much. Yes. 1000%. Um, all right. Well, you are on the vendor-ish side, so we're going to kick it over to George A to start us. 
Awesome. Uh, thanks, George. And Danny, um, obviously, like, thank you for coming on the show. It's like a bit of a celebration for us. I can't believe enough people have listened to us consistently that we can justify a 50th episode and That's apparently right. scheduled till March, which is awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. I think a huge part of that was actually when we started working with you. Um, and I remember the first time we kind of worked together with Audience First and we did the big show in uh, in Vegas this summer. And I think you you have played directly a big part in our show still being a thing and people knowing about it. And to that, I am completely and, and eternally thankful for that. But you have been an awesome part of our whole little journey. And it's been a really big pleasure just becoming friends with you over the last year or so. Um, all that preamble to say, I'm curious from your business perspective, uh, especially given the success that you and George had on that survey with RSA this year, given the absolutely, uh, you know, we'll say tightened climate in terms of spending uh, in the cyberspace, how have you actually adapted your approach to marketing for your particular clients knowing that now now private equity, now boards are, are kind of becoming a little bit more stringent in actually authorizing the spend. And it's really elevated the difficulty of the game across all levels, even with people who have very solid client relationships already. I'm really interested to know how you kind of recognize the problem, adapted, and then started employing new strategies to actually still keep your folks successful. Well, first, I love that question. Um, before answering it, I just want to say hats off to you guys as well. And and bravo, you've you've done an exceptional job this year with the podcast. And I love your mission. I'm a subscriber. Um, I'm a follower and I'll forever, you know, promote uh, and be a proponent of your cause. So um, well done. And thank you for allowing me to be thank you for allowing me to be part of that mission. Um, to answer your question, I think a few things need to happen. Um, one from a marketing sign is an understanding that this is a volatile market. This is a volatile world, like actually being aware of your surrounding and what's going on from a from an economical standpoint. Right. Understanding. Mm-hmm how boards are behaving, what boards are expecting, what the CEOs are expecting, uh, the business is expecting and needs. Second is understanding and taking a look at yourself, like assess yourself and what you're doing wrong and right before you actually have the, the, before you actually change your tactics based on what you're evaluating from the board perspective or the market, right? Um, the, the third is, is being comfortable with internal mindset shift um, as a marketer. Um, we get so caught in our ways that mm-hmm. um, we kind of go on autopilot because output, output, we got to execute, we got to do a lot of things. And marketers are, especially in the B2B space, and if you're selling it to the enterprise, are notorious for you know, chewing, off, chewing or biting off more than they can chew. Once you've understood that, assessed yourself and kind of under, understood that you have to, to shift your own mindset, you have to start champion, championing and evangelizing the shifts that need to be made internally to the right people. So that's the CMO, it could be the CRO, and it could be the CEO, even like R&D and product. You have mm. to be that champion of change internally. Um. Before you come in and say, okay, this is what I have to do tactically to change. Um, What I think needs to change from a tactical perspective is focus on 
quality over quantity with, with this, um, you know, economic volatility and the, the expectations from the board. And, you know, uh, we talk about, you know, Legion and, and, you know, spray and pray and, um, you know, cold outreach and all that kind of stuff. Really, our job now as marketers has to be focusing on super high, like high, um, highly targeted approaches to the right people, understanding who they are, defining that early on, understanding how um, their goals match your business goals, mapping your value to their need and, and being comfortable with less, less is more. So the, the immediate follow up to that, and it aligns perfectly with what George and I's mission is on this whole show is, you know, bringing the human element back to the business development relationship. How do you then recommend to folks in that marketing role or even in that pre-sales kind of role that deal with a CRO or CMO based pressure? Because they want more, more, more. They want statistical output that they can then positively report to their boards. How do you summarize a pitch to your own internal leadership being like, hey, let's slow this down. Let's focus on quality over quantity. Because to me, quality over quantity means an investment in time. Time seems to be the resource mm-hmm. that leadership doesn't want to invest in their people. Mm-hmm. Numbers, showing the numbers, showing actual facts. We c- in scenarios, we could go this route. These are the trade-offs if we go this route, spray and pray or qual- quantity over quality. And these are the trade-offs if we go over quantity or quality over quantity. I mean, choose choose your battle. We can get to this forecast with this route. We could get to that forecast with this route. You'll see a trajectory after here because look at the journey of XYZ, ABC conversations I've had doing this. Look at the output from, you know, one, two, three, five, six, seven, doing doing this strategy. So you have to come in really strong with facts and it has to be, you have to consistently have those, have those conversations. It's not a one-time conversation. It's a consistent conversation that happens several times throughout the year, throughout the month, however, however long, you know, it takes until they get it. George, on to you, sir. Yeah. You know, it's funny because that sounds suspiciously like what CISOs do when they're doing risk planning scenarios. You know, it's you know? funny. And I was thinking about it um, early this morning at uh, 4.45 when I was texting you, uh, George. <laughs> um, yes, I've joined the 5 a.m. club or the 3.45 a.m. club. Or what is it, 3.47? I don't know what. Yeah, yeah, it's 3.47. Ungodly hour. Anyway, um, I was thinking about it, you know, in um, in some of the things that I'm trying to shift with Audience First, just taking a look back at what I've done in the past year, year and a half too, a lot of how I'm approaching things now from a marketing perspective stems from what I've learned from the CISOs that I've interviewed in the past two years. Mm. Taking on, and you know, I, I quetched a little bit this morning about what pisses yeah. me off in the marketing role or in the marketing world. This, this notion that we have to get to perfect, but we can't get to perfect. There's just so much to be done. 
we have to take a systematic progressive approach towards, again, mm -hmm. progress, maintaining progress. You can't, you know, you can't get to perfect and, and good enough is great. From a practitioner standpoint, I think that should be like a message that's heavily, heavily enforced around the industry. Like people should carry this. If as a practitioner, my operation's never perfect. There is no such thing as perfect. Right. You will ever, right. never have like zero risk security. So why would we expect the sellers and marketers of security products to also be perfect? That's a bit of a double standard and unfair, right? Mm -hmm. 100%. And which is why like I lean back so heavily on the feedback. Because if we're going to maintain progress, we need to nurture that feedback. We need to apply that feedback to get to the next step. Um, so I, I, it's, I, you know, kind of was like a, a, an aha moment this morning or it kind of blew my mind. I'm like, holy shit, like th this is actually pretty cool. And I get it now. I get, mm -hmm. I get where, where the CISOs and the practitioners are coming from when it comes to, to maturity and progress. Um, it, you know, it makes me feel comfortable that with the fact that like, we don't have to be viral. We don't have to be exceptional. We have to be really good and we have to be super focused and, and focus on that quality to get to the next step with whoever we want to persuade. Yeah. I like the emphasis on consistency. You know, it's like any workout program, diet program, literally any like long haul movement in your own life is going to require you know, 1%, 2% gains over a long period of time. And I know we have some like hockey stick metrics goals or whatever to hit, but I also know that marketing teams are very prone to shiny objects and novelty, which results in a lot of thrash. Like that campaign didn't work last quarter. Let's completely redo everything with architect new systems. Let's try completely new techniques. And it, it becomes very hard to see progress over time and kind of get that feedback. So you, you talked about learning with this experience of interviewing CISOs. And I, I think you and I are on the same page that marketing is like the anthropology of your customer, right? Like you're like understanding that customer. So this was also a big year for you when you struck out on your own with audience first and you were basically building this up. So what would you say is the biggest lesson that you have taken away from that entrepreneurial experience. And for the sake of our listeners, we are intentionally keeping this interview format a little faster and looser than usual because Danny is a close friend and we have that level of familiarity. So yeah, let's just get into your entrepreneurship journey and, and what you got out of that. Uh, I mean, I could take that question into a lot of different directions, um, but the, the one takeaways that are blaring right now <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. and coming to mind is, is I, I'm a marketer by trade, but I have a deep, deep, deep respect for salespeople because owning your own business, you aren't a marketer. You're everything. Right. Yes. Um, you're all the things. And yeah. And marketing only gets you so far. Um, you got to close the deal and you have to manage the expenses and you have mm -hmm. to hire people and you have to make people happy and succeed. And so I have a deep respect for salespeople. I have a deep respect for customer success. I, if anything, 
as a mar- as a marketer, I, I think understanding um, how you should function in each role at a high level uh, will do you well. Um, mm-hmm. Just you know, keep you well rounded altogether. Um, the second thing is um, th- this might you know ruffle some feathers, but some of the programs that I sold. Um, and sold as past tense for a reason, mm-hmm. still are not affecting change. Mm. And that's because there's a deep problem in this industry. And I just, I think, you know, across the tech space, maybe even further out into the consumer space, I don't know. I, I'll stick to cybersecurity, but there's a deep problem in that, you know, those focus groups that I was working on the one-on-one conversations are still not scalable and are still not getting people to actually change their mindset to talk to customers. Mm. And, you know, when I kicked off the the company, some um, alarming statistics stood out to me. I think it was, um, you know, 31% of B2B marketers actually engage with their customers and like 3% of, founders talk to their customers, something along those lines. I don't know where it stands right now in 2024. That's bananas. Yes, very much bananas. And so I'm wondering what that statistic is now and, you know, going into 2024. And, and so the lesson I learned is enabling people with those focus groups and giving them the reports and giving them the insights and the actions on how to, the recommendations on how to action those insights still is not enough. And so I'm, I'm, I'm scratching my head and, and, and trying to figure out still through research and, um, you know, through, through shifting the business, like what is it that's needed to get people to pick up the phone, get closer to customers, right? Like there's a deeper problem here that I'm still trying to figure out. It's hard to believe this is the 51st episode of Bare Knuckles and Brass Tacks. We're thrilled to be doing this podcast, so thank you very much for listening. Subscribe to catch up on past episodes you may have missed, and we look forward to sharing some exciting announcements soon. Now, back to our conversation with the incomparable Danny Wolf. Can I offer perhaps one perspective on it? Yes. I think part of the issue is, especially in the tech space, not just the cyberspace generally, because when you look at a lot of these like new like cloud-based business enablement tools, and I see this issue a lot, um, a lot of the founders and uh, ownership shareholding folks within those organizations, especially if they're not public sector or not public, not uh, publicly traded, they are building themselves up to a critical mass so that they can be acquired. So ultimately, the whole thing they care about is filling out the line items so that they can actually make themselves really appeasing to some buyer or some big organization to take them over. So their actual mission or their just cause is not a good mission. They're not trying to solve a problem or actually improve the quality of life or quality of business for their customers. Mm -hmm. They're trying to make as much money as they can, as quick as they can, so that they can exit. And I think we, as folks who are trying to make industry better, all three of us and our friends, our general community of content creators and folks who are doing this, 
we have not managed to address at, I think, the ownership and um, business leadership level, the problem of folks who are just in it to bang out some money and get out. And I think the problem is, and I'm not saying we're naive, but perhaps like we are so mission oriented on the good, on the actual just cause and purpose of being in this business. I don't know how we defeat the attitude of let's just make our money and run. So I, I, I love that you say that. Um, I think we need to do a better job of letting people under who are in that mindset of profit at all costs understand that if you do things based off of a mission, you will get to exponentially more base. Like we have to make the case. They don't understand our mission. Maybe they don't understand the mission from like a um, intrinsic you know, the, the intrinsic motivation we have. But if we show it based off, uh, like if we show that if they do things differently, you know what I was saying before, um, if you have a mission, but if you do things differently in this way, this is where you're going to get, I think we need to make that case more consistently. Like, you know, I'm preaching, we're, you know, preaching to the choir here. We got to do it ourselves. Um, it, it, and it's a, it's a hard, um, it's a hard route to go down because there will be a lot of haters probably potentially with this kind of, you know, like message or evangelism. But I, I'm, I'm fully on board with what you're saying. And, and, um, you know, maybe, maybe we're not doing a good enough job just spewing it regularly. Maybe we're not connecting the dots or translating the message to the people who need to hear it. Uh, George curious. Now we're in this like weird place where I'm going to interview you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) curious if from the buyer side, if there are ways that you sort of probe for that when you're talking to vendors, like, you know, are you reading Crunchbase? Are you like, are you trying to get a vibe as to like, why are they in this? Are they scaling super fast? Um, you know, I don't, I don't know. Just, get keen from the buyer perspective. Yeah. I mean, there are like business analytics type report that you can look at, especially if it's a newer company, you're like trying to discover like, who are these people and what are they about? And it's like, Oh, you're just finished your series B. Like, what is the point of your existence? Um, but I've dealt with some, we'll call it partner organizations, um, throughout my career where like, especially once I stepped into like the director plus level where, you know, we were trying to solve a business level problem and they might not be the most security mature like platform or solution in the world, but you know, design wants this thing or marketing wants this thing Mm -hmm. or like some other non-security, non-engineering part of the house wants this thing. And you're like, okay, cool. So the business wants this and it's like just passable enough that we can approve purchasing it with the caveat that, okay, we are going to take on the role or like I personally had to do this with like client C- or partner CTOs. I'm going to be your security advisor from a client standpoint. If you want us to renew with you or actually see this contract through, I'm going to give you a list of recommendations that we need to put on your roadmap. Ooh. On one, one particular case, there's only one organization that actually did it, saw it through and I still work with them. Every other organization Either we had to ditch them from a contract level because something happened and they didn't fix the thing that I identified at the start. And then it's just like, okay, cool. Well, I'm going to send you legal now because this contract's done. Or, you know, they get halfway through the process and then they're bought out. And then this, this whole thing was just a fucking waste of my time. 
but that's that for me as a CISO is how I've tried to deal with the problem. But I'm not sure if that's a scalable solution. And I, and I, I have the experience to do that because I came up in consulting. So I was used to being a security advisor. I still have to put that hat on to be like, cool, it's not part of your roadmap. If you care about our business and sustaining it to the point of renewal, I need you to implement these things. Yeah, I mean, I think for our listeners and others, one, I would love that on the product side. I want those design partners. I want those deep partnerships, right? I am 100% all in, like, help make me more secure so I can go attract more security buyers. But I also think that speaks to, I don't know how many of our listeners understand that process, but like when you're in stealth or you've got your seed, like you go out and you do try to find design partners. People basically take a chance on you and you work super closely. Like, what would you like to see in the UX? What would you like to see in the UI? And I have heard from several founders of companies that then went on to be acquired that they said, and this is to Danny's point, when we stopped, you know, doing a lot of logo acquisition and we invested in our customers. So that first set that took that leap of faith on you, whether it was dumping money back into product, dumping R and D or doing the cross sell upsell. When we invested in our customers, that's when we saw the most growth because then of course, like you have said numerous times on this show, George, those people go to bat for you. Like the force multiplier of several CISOs saying like these folks are legit versus whatever ad spend you have. Like those two are incomparable. Can I, can I give you guys and for folks listening, especially on the practitioner side, I have an example of a person who absolutely embodies this and she's a founder, uh, C. Vantelia from, from Onyxia. Like I love working with that woman. I think she's absolutely brilliant. This is the entire approach that her and her team have like done. I know uh, Chris works with them quite a bit. A lot of cool folks I know work with quite a bit. It's it's a very like, like basically they offer like a, a CISO command and control platform that covers everything. It's, it's fucking brilliant. I wish, you know, like we were at a point where I could afford niche tools like that. That's not quite my thing yet, but she's been talking to me for over a year and every, you know, every couple months, every two months or so, she'll be like, Hey, so we made some product improvements. Can I just show them to you? Can I get your opinion? And I'm sure she spends a ton of time with a ton of different CISOs of varying levels, just having simple, like, Hey, I'm going to sit you down with my CTO and we're just going to go over kind of the updates we've done. What are your thoughts? And mm-hmm. you know, this type of approach I think is going to enable her in the long run to really succeed. She's going to revolutionize how security divisions and departments are managed once people actually buy into what Onyxia can do. She is like the poster child example of a founder doing it right. Nice. Well, well what let's I, if you don't mind now we we got into interviewing George. Um <laughs> why do you think she does a good job of that? Because she comes at it from a position where, you know, she, first of all, is very authentic and genuine as a person. And like that, that really helps. So when she comes across to you, it doesn't feel like you're going to push some used car sales type thing. And someone's like clearly just shooting for profit. And they're like, here's an Amazon gift card. Let me just buy you out. Can you look at a thing for half an hour? Right. She tries to actually spark an organic relationship. And she's like, hey, I'd like to understand the concerns that you face day to day. And I'm trying to build a solution that can help you manage them better. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no sell in that statement. There's no sell. There's no pitch. There's no sell. She's genuinely just trying to be like, hey, dude, I have an idea to do a thing. It might make your life easier and other CISOs' lives easier. Do you want to be a part of this? And, you know, how, dude, how do you meet someone like that, knowing that they're a founder and, and you know, aside, she's a female founder at that. So obviously I do want to see her succeed. But when someone's that genuine, how do you say no to that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. Imagine imagine if more founders would take that approach. Like what 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 the market, right? Like what the investor market would look like. <laughs> well, and I think let's let's dig into this a little bit. I feel like there's a sea change. There are several factors underway that I think make the wild west of B2B 2012 to 2015 untenable. So, a few things. One, I think the market has matured and people have tired of these tactics, right? I mean, it's just not a day you go by on LinkedIn that people's not decrying some sort of like cold outreach. So like the appetite of the market has changed. Technology is changing. Like Google just announced it's basically going to block domains if they're sending more than 5,000 emails a day. That includes things like IT requests or help desk tickets or just not the marketing quote unquote blasts. Right. So that makes all of the ecosystem of that software sales loft outreach. Like they're all got to put those limits into their software because if they become the signal, like their uh, servers get blocked, which would be, you know, catastrophic to their business. Um, And then lastly, interest rates are back. So, you know, as we've talked to a few VCs, things like customer churn is a problem. New logo acquisition is expensive. So they're looking for customer retention. They are looking for cash flow positivity. You can't just like, you know, run at a loss and run the ARR up and that's the valuation math as cleanly as you did before when we were in the zero interest rate period. So I, I don't know. I really feel like there's some there's some serious change afoot, and it's to your point, Danny. How quickly the market realizes that, sees that writing on the wall, and and begins to adapt to it. Well, they they realize it, but then they they invest resources in the wrong places because they think, okay, well, because of this, we got to hire more demand gen directors or more <laughs> growth mm. managers instead of, all right, let's implement resources we have, shift and focus on customer marketing and advocacy. Let's hire more customer marketers. Let's even like double down on, on that play, like on the retention play, which I've been in a lot of companies. Okay. You know, average tenure is about a year and a half too for me. And I've been in the Mm -hmm. game for 14, 15 years. So it's about seven different companies. In not one company has there been an end to end retention play. It's been like on the back burner. And I'm like, why? Like, but why? <laughs> like, you can save so why? much money, yeah. you know, instead of like focusing on LinkedIn crap, you know, spending $30,000 a month minimum, like, which isn't, you know, some of these companies are spending millions of dollars a month. You know, we could do a lot with $30,000 with our existing customers. I would argue it's the obsession with new growth. Like, yes. Once you become a customer and you're already on the books, you're like a renewal. It's like a, couple points maybe of increase in price or whatever 
but, but you can you can guys. impact you can impact net new with retention. Yes, I, I, dude, I fully agree. Like you're you're preaching the choir, but I'm just saying in yeah. in dealing with business leaders and then dealing with like ownership type folks or, or, or just non-technical executives, oftentimes the thinking is we need new logos because we need new contracts and we need to show that like exponential growth. I really think we had this weird period where there was like an insane amount of exponential growth. VCs were just pissing money away left, right and center. And no one really took the time to understand like the nuances of what was happening from a buyer perspective or, or what the customers were doing or even resource utilization. Like you buy the tool, you got the tool, board's happy. Does the team actually use it? Right. Yeah. And that was a huge like predictor of whether or not they're going to renew with you. Cause if you buy a tool and then like, yeah, you celebrate and then like come renewal time, it's like, yeah, we only use this like 10% of the time. You're not going to renew. So I think yeah. it goes again back to that attitude of just like, how do we get folks in that revenue generating ownership class to, to accept and shareholders too, if you're, if you're publicly traded, it is not realistic to have 50 plus percent growth year over year. It is nuts to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to Danny's point about customer success versus customer marketing, I mean, you should be basically checking in on your customers because if you see that they're like not logging in or not using or they haven't configured it it's not like hit them up for renewal 30 days 60 days before the contract ends. it's like hey why don't you violently love this solution oh i forgot to set up the whatever or ask whoa let's fix that because i want you violently passionate about this solution right like that's just like you know management so we're coming up on time but i wanted to return Danny to this idea of operationalizing customer research. Like how do we get that? So I was talking with some university students and in the subject of AI came up naturally. And I was talking about like, how can you use these tools to enhance what your human creativity can do? I was like, do you know what every marketer wants? They do want to spend time getting qualitative feedback. The only reason we use dumb numbers like rate us one through five is because we had no way to crunch massive amounts of qualitative feedback easily. So we just made these number scales so we could do the math fast. Right. But I'm talking about these interviews that you do and you have these transcripts. You now actually have the technology to process massive amounts of customer information in ways that are infinitely more usable than stupid word clouds of you know, 2014, which is what they would try to sell you in their selling sentiment analysis tools. Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. It's, it strikes me like you don't really have an excuse now because the technology is readily available. Oh yeah. You could do it so much quicker. I mean, I've sped up the process in, in just less than a year, sped up the process like infinitely. Um, it, 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 ugh, man, I wish I had it two years ago. <laughs> you know, I wish I knew about about some of this stuff much earlier. Let's just say that much. Um, but yeah, there is no excuse. So, so are you curious? What, what, how can I, how can I help? And like, how can I give some imparting thoughts? What, what specific thoughts should I, should I share with the audience today? Yeah, I'm thinking about this, this question of oper operationalization. Like, as you said, like I've, you know, we've done this data and we can't convince people that it matters. And you've talked about like, we hire more demand gen versus more customer marketing. I think maybe the, 
it's not so much a question as maybe looking for your reaction about like, if we have the tools to process the data, great. Now we take that information and how do we get it like across the team? How do we like involve the rest of the marketing team so that they understand the value and where to apply it? Like what does the demand gen manager do with that yeah. information? Yeah, that's a great question. As a marketer who wants to know about a specific audience or a customer, you have your own objectives. Well, you should have your own objectives. A lot of sometimes a lot of people don't know what they need to know, so they don't know what their objective is. So if anything, step one is like understand what you need to know. Second, understand what your stakeholders need to know, because once you know what your stakeholders need to know and what their goals are, it'll be much easier to make the case of, all right, I have this data. Here's how we can apply it to your cause. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes creating the so what from the what and then the now what much easier. There's the what, the so what, and the now what. I learned that from my boss, yeah. um, you know, four or five years ago, a CMO, great, great guy, Chris Gabler. The easiest part is the what, the data, and the now what. Like it's easy to tell people what to do. Whether or not it's mm-hmm. the right thing to do is another story. The hardest part is gather, is analyzing that data. Um, and yes, these tools that we have today, this technology, are nice supplements for analyzing data. I wouldn't rely on them wholeheartedly, but for sure. maybe you know start you know start getting experimenting with it at least. Yeah. But um, I, I would say understanding what your stakeholders need to do, and then really like figuring out what are the hypotheses that you can make from the data that you're gathering, and taking those hypotheses and creating like systematized actions and prioritized actions based off of those hypotheses that are backed by the evidence. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. It does in my head. <laughs> I'm it visualizing does. I it. mean, I mean, I think what you're saying is like, again, you're understanding cross discipline. Like what do you care about? Here is this data I'm bringing to you. Not just because it's a nice yeah. thing to have. This is yeah. what matters to you. And then, and then, Take it, taking it a, a step even further, when I say hypothesis, you're saying, you're saying we will get to a specific place because of X, Y, Z. This is how we're going to mm-hmm. do it. And here's the evidence that backs it. So when you come to the table to a stakeholder with that kind of information, it, it'll click to them because one, it, it aligns with their goals. Two, you're, you're setting up the scenario for a future state, which is easier and feels a little bit more tangible mm. for those people. And you have a plan of action that's prioritized. It doesn't have to be perfect, but again, as marketers, we have to experiment. There's the actual scientific method of experiments, right? I think that's the kind of like uh, the best advice I could give for, to young and veteran marketers is, is be comfortable with that kind of approach. And then, and then second is like uh, uh, operationalizing requires you to practice those, what you hate calling soft skills, but what was it that you, vital, vital skills? Yeah. I'm on, I'm on a, I'm going to campaign. I'm going to start calling them vital skills because yes. I don't know how you succeed without them. So part of operationalizing, like you got to practice those vital skills um, so that the operations become smoother as you, as you progress through the, this research journey. You know, marketers were re- we're researchers. I feel like we're marketers. We have to understand the market. Um, mm-hmm. So, I would sign off for that.
All right. That's a great place to stop. But George, you were saying something yeah, George, before the markers got super enthusiastic. So I'll leave it no, to you for last. My, my whole idea is, and I don't know, I think this was talked about, George and I talked about it at some point in the last year, and I, I don't know if you're doing it or not. I feel like, not to throw a challenger business idea to you, I feel that there should be a training program that perhaps you develop with some of the folks in your network especially for new entry-level marketers who need to get modernized in their approach because I think the post-secondary programs that are training and certifying marketing people are behind the times. Oh, yeah. We are talking about something very cutting edge. And I feel like a lot of people, if they don't already have that mindset or the statistical-based skill set naturally, they need to be instructed and advised on how to do this. Because it's easy for us to sit here on top of like, mid-career research mountain and be like, oh, cool, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this. But if you're some new marketing person, you're like fresh out of school, you're 25, 26 years old, you're like, Eska fuck, I got to make a quota, right? So I, I I would hope at some point, maybe it's something you consider or, or something you're already doing and give you a chance to promote it, training the people. So it's funny you mentioned this. It's like when I started Academy, Audience First Academy, I'm like, I, I have so much I want to teach, but then do people want to actually listen to me? Like, I want people to listen to the buyers, but because of the learnings that I'm uh, uh, digesting from this past year uh, running the business, um, it's still not clicking. So maybe there there needs to be something created and maybe I just need to get out of my own way and, and like overcome the imposter syndrome of like, I can actually, you know, drive this myself. Maybe people will actually listen to me. Maybe the barrier is a little bit lower, so they'll actually apply. I don't know. It's an experiment worth... Um... Uh, I, will, I will tell you this. You have a decade and a half professional experience in this thing, man. You are more than qualified to be right. the person. Like, get over that shit, dude. I know, right? <laughs> which is, by the way, uh, George, George, which is, by the way, the, the third lesson is like imposter syndrome we all suffer from it, entrepreneur or not. It happens all the time. That's the, it'll never go away. 100%. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. Danny, thank you so much for the time. It's been a pleasure. I look forward to texting you again at five in the morning, but yes. thank you for sharing your insights here. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to you again soon. Appreciate it, Danny. Thank you to, to both of you. Yeah. Thank you so much. That wraps up this episode of Bare Knuckles and Brass Tacks. If you liked what you heard, consider sharing what you learned on LinkedIn, and we'd love to hear from you. Or leave us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the show. We'll talk to you next week.